Hey, welcome back to The Urban Monk. Dr. Pedram Shojai hanging out talking about the brain. Um, it is hard to have a functioning brain in today's society. There are so many things that we need to know, uh, from neurotoxins to lack of sleep to watching uh, TV or political rallies. There are many things are mind-numbing and damaging to the brain, in my opinion. So I went and got an expert on the subject. Gary Wank uh, teaches about the stuff. He's at Ohio State University, professor of psychology, neuroscience and molecular virology and immunology and medical genetics. That's a lot of stuff. So uh, he's probably read a book or two and I'm so happy to have him here to talk about how we can take better care of our brains. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. Yeah, wow. So that is a lot of school. <laughs> you are teaching things most, pe <laughs> most people don't even know how to pronounce. Um, hey, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it takes, right? Got to run those miles. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's fun stuff. I love studying it. And amazing. And so, you know, the brain is such a top-down control system, but it's also kind of like a feedback loop in an ecosystem. We used to have a very different understanding of the brain. And in, in just my 40 some odd years here running around on the planet, it has dramatically changed to being kind of like a master control switch box to much, much more. So I'm excited about this. There are, um, you know, you, you talk about memories and, and, and mm -hmm. what they're made of, right? Like, like how are they made? Like how, so these are things that we just didn't even understand. Uh, That's quite true. a decade yeah. ago, right? Uh, that's yeah right I you know we, we've had some insights um, obviously but working out all the details uh, my god it takes a lot of time and uh, that's been a big part of my research and as we've learned a little bit more about uh, how we make memories we've also fortunately learned a lot about how we lose memories and so uh, most of my research has been focused on you know normal aging and Alzheimer's disease so as we've figured out how we make memories and it stumbled on the ways of how we lose them I think we've made some progress in at least uh, getting to the to the point where we may be able to develop some therapies for people who are uh, losing memories as they get older or have dementia, Alzheimer's disease, that kind of thing. So we didn't expect, I think, that uh, we would make progress on aging as we were trying to figure out how we learn, you know, what the what a chair is or what you know what the word assassin means, that kind of thing. Uh, so then all that's happened in the past decades. That's interesting. I think there's a third bucket we haven't talked about is how, how we can intentionally lose some memories, but I think that falls in more of the psychology than the than the neurology, right? Um, it, it does, yes, yeah. Right, and so how are memories made? Like, I, is this is this gonna get too geeky or we, can, we, can we get into it? Like, I, I'm fascinated. Uh, you know what? <laughs> it doesn't get too geeky too fast. Actually, um, if you allow me just to go to a simple organism like, um, the guy who won the Nobel Prize for this uh, was actually working with sea slugs. Uh, so, and they make memories too. They need things that they need to learn, uh, things they need to avoid, and you know, predators they need to avoid. So, we learned a lot from simple organisms, um, and it turned out that we make memories in the same way they do. Uh, it, it comes down to the fact that we have in our brains some things called neurons, which cells, um, and their job is to make and break connections between each other. You know, it's it's still a fair analogy to make. Uh, comparisons to computers and, you know, telephone systems, you hook up wires and you've got connections that you didn't have before. Um, now we do know that some memories are easier to make, some memories are easier to lose. Um, really very frightening memories, you know, like PTSD related memories, those hang on a lifetime and we'd love to get rid of them and find ways to do it, but it's tough to do. 
Uh, and then there were other things we learned, like, you know, the pizza guy's telephone number. And, of course, that's gone uh, before the pizza arrives. Um, so, you know, there, what we've learned is that memories come in a lot of different forms. And different parts of our brain lays down memories in different ways for different regions. So we learn how to ride a bicycle and remember that with one part of our brain. We learn, you know, uh, how to speak English with an entirely different part of the brain. But what we've learned is that the underlying mechanisms are the same. Uh, so if we understand, you know, how a person, you know, lays down a memory for life, uh, we can investigate how we can uh, do really fancy, crazy things like give them false memories, which is what you just hinted at a moment ago. Um, we've actually been able to do that with animals, believe it or not. We can, uh, we can give them a memory they didn't have before. And we're getting to the point now with, uh, uh, you know, fancy recording equipment that we can listen as animals make their own memories. Uh, so it's, it's amazing what progress we've made. But it isn't just enough to understand how a memory is made. We need to, to take that somewhere. We need to take it to humans and help them either remember better, start having memory impairments more slowly, would be nice, um, or help them recover memories that they've lost uh, for, you know, for whatever reason. So uh, there is a lot of clinical applications to working with sea slugs and animals. Wow. So hold on a second. We, we now have total recall for, for doggies. We can, give, <laughs> we can give them memories that they didn't have before. And it's actually with, uh, with rats, but sure. yes, we do. Wow. Yeah, that, that is not, yeah, that is not too far away from uh, the, oh, I mean, if it could happen with rats, you're assuming, you know, if it came from slugs yes. and it's happening with rats, then humans are not that far of a stretch away. Working way our way up to you, yeah. Just hold on yeah. a little while. Okay, but uh, you give it a week. <laughs> so, so we have the ability now to actually listen to animals dreaming, and um, if we can listen to enough neurons, uh, four or five hundred in them, we can actually tell what they're dreaming, which is even as much science fictiony as implanting, you know, false memories. Uh, so we're getting shit. to the point um, that uh, you know we're learning so much that I think science fiction, as it is many times in the past, is becoming real life. Wow. So, okay, when we talk about looking at using our, our kind of current metaphors of, of you know, hooking up wires, um, mm -hmm. if, I have a, if I have storage on my, my laptop in front of me here, there's all these wires and circuits, but then they go to this thing called a hard disk where, you know, my memories are stored type of thing. Is there some sort of, is it more of a distributed cloud of, of what's called memories or, you know, is it like the hippocampus is holding things? Like, how, like um, where, where, what these things called memories, where the hell do they live, right, at the end of the day? <laughs> okay, you just got nerdy before I did with hippocampus. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it begins there. You know, all these sensory things, you know, I mean, what's a memory anyway? It, it's just sight, sounds, tastes, you know, all those kinds of things. They all come together into the hippocampus you mentioned, uh, which sort of lives just inside your ears. Um, and then it's got to go somewhere. And what we've discovered is the various aspects of memory get scattered around. So memory about the sights go to one part, memory about the sounds go to another. And uh, so, yeah, we, we distribute our memories so that we don't lose them. So what we've learned that many times with humans with, you know, injuries, strokes, tumors and animal studies um, that you don't lose all of the memory in the same way. And you probably noticed this as well. You don't recall all of it in entire memory, you know. The one thing, I, the point I made in that book you were holding at the beginning is that our brains aren't video or tape recorders. Um, they're not designed, they didn't evolve to record everything and remember it. Um, the idea is that you remember what you need to to survive and, you know, live long enough to have offspring. Uh, so you don't need much memory to do that. Just, you know, avoid things that smell like lions and bears and tigers and, 
uh, go forward towards things that smell like a potential mate or food. Those are pretty mm. simple memories to, to gain. So, and we, we always assume somehow that our memories are perfect. And when they're not perfect, we think there's something wrong with us. And that's just not the case. Uh, our brains never evolved to, to be the kinds of things that sit in front of you there, that computer. And they don't work the same way. And uh, scientists are trying now to find ways to turn us into the board from, you know, science, uh, Star Trek. Um, and we're certainly making progress in that way. But one of the biggest problems that is that your computer works in a, in a different pattern than our brain does. And so the challenge isn't, uh, you know, isn't the computer power. The challenge is how do we get a computer to talk to our brain in the brain's language? Uh, that's what we're learning as well. And, and certainly progress is being made. Uh, I have a prediction that your grandchildren, um, are going to see that happen, that we will really have true implants where we will communicate to, you know, metallic things that then, you know, tap us into the Internet or whatever. You know, um, there's a lot of progress being made that in that area now. Yeah, I mean, I'm I wouldn't be surprised if it was my children, not my grandchildren at this pace. Yes. It's just quickening so much. It really um, is. Yes. So, so you know, I have a, a grandmother who uh, had really bad Alzheimer's before she she passed uh, several years ago, and I mean, I was it was you know up front and center. I mean, it was, you know, some of the long term memory was there. The short term was just fried, like just fried, fried. And so it was one of those things that you know I'm uh, very viscerally aware of is you know why this research is happening and how how you know debilitating and how how challenging some of these these diseases are. And you're on the other side trying to find solutions for it. One of the things that came to mind when you were talking about this though is, you know, I got a buddy named Jim Quick who teaches uh, memory tricks, right? And one, and one of the things he does, you know, so, so part of it is like, okay, what did it smell like? What was the color? What was the texture? And as you're saying this, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. You're invoking multi-sensorial type of images and feelings to kind of distribute and put the memory in different parts of the brain so that there can be better recall. It's very interesting right. how some of these techniques are, are using all that uh, on the science that you guys are building on. Sure, and uh, I think it's a great technique. Uh, we understand that the brain does take all these things in, and that's, as I said, these memories are linked to each other. So uh, oftentimes, like, odors are really good at bringing back memories. You know, you smell a, a perfume, and it reminds you of your grandmother, or uh, certain odors of certain foods and or things you hated, um, or people. Uh, so, yeah, odors are great cues for us. You know, the interesting thing about odors is, for us is that we have a really uh, approach avoidance with odors. Most people, it's like, wow, I like that, or geez, I hate that. We don't tend to have neutral things about odors the way we do with sights and sounds, you know, uh, mm -hmm. some music he does not care for. Um, but it is interesting um, that you can use these tricks to help the brain learn better um, mm -hmm. using the knowledge you've learned about how memories form anyway. Yeah. Is, is part of that potentially because the olfactory system is just old and it's more just kind of like, you know, primitive, like yes, no, you know, uh, type of animalian yes. response. Exactly. It's the mm. uh, odor and taste. I mean, if you think about um, one of the first things points I make in the book is why is the brain in the head? And it's related to your nose and mouth. Um, organisms put their, you know, their, their memory processing stuff up here. Their, you know, the, the tools they need to find prey or, or avoid prey and find, uh, you know, food, that kind of thing. It's all at the front of your feeding tube. I mean, you know, we're just feeding tubes. And so we need chemical sensors. And since we evolved in a water environment, uh, chemistry is what we took advantage of. And you mentioned the hippocampus a moment ago. We think the hippocampus evolved for the purpose of sensing odors. I mean, if you think about it, if you're a fish in the water, the chemical hits you 
a, a, a period of time before you actually find the source of the chemical. So you need to remember, here is that odor, and then minutes later, oh, here's the source. It's food. It's a predator. So the hippocampus's job is to connect things in time. And that's what memories are for us. You know, all mm. this sensory stuff comes in, and then we can reuse it some period of time later. You know, like the pizza guy's number. The hippocampus, you know, recalls it, recalls it. You type the number, and then the hippocampus discards it. So, yeah, olfaction is the... Uh, it's a chemical sense. It's the front end of food, and it's what you use to determine what's going in you. Interesting. And that that concept of time and and the hippocampus basically just being like a time buffer to hold that scent, hold that chemical until you know its relevance has kind of worn out. It's like okay, you got to the source of food or you got away from something. It's really interesting because mm -hmm. because then it, it it creates a cushion and then it brings in this other element of uh, kind of the nature of thoughts. Like, do some memories actually last forever? I mean, do we just hold on to them all the way until we're, we're done with our bodies, or are they gone when their utility is gone? Uh, you know, it depends on the memory you have. Uh, most memories are important to us. Uh, like, you know, what a chair looks like, or, you know, or what a red appears to be. You know, these things have survival value for us. Uh, they last forever. Unlike every other cell in your body, uh, neurons are not, they're not dying, at least you don't want them to die. Um, they're, they're hanging around forever, uh, which puts some limits on us. I mean, we can keep remaking our intestines and our skin, bone and everything, uh, but neurons, you, you're born with them. You want to keep them. They make connections. You don't want them to disappear and die because if they do, the memories go with it. And that's kind of what's happening. Now, in Alzheimer's disease, neurons aren't necessarily dying. We used to think they did, but it turns out they're really just disconnecting and shrinking. And so if you can avoid the things that make neurons disconnect, uh, the memories don't aren't lost. And that's what we're trying to do now. You know, my research on aging and Alzheimer's disease um, has led us to realize that, you know, we, we start getting dementia very, very young in life. And whether we become demented or not and lose our memories depends a lot on how we lived our lives. You know, we're, we're discovering the connection between diet, food, uh, things like obesity, arthritis, the drugs you took, the drugs you didn't take, you know, those kinds of things. And we're discovering, at least my research is focused on the epidemiology. So, you know, we interview people who are in their 80s and we say, you know, sir, you're not demented. Why? What did you do differently? Mm. You know, and obviously genes play a role. But they tell us things, um, and the answers to that question have been guiding my research now the past 20 years. So we've looked at, you know, when people tell me, well, I drank a lot of beer, or I smoked a lot of cigarettes, or I drank, or smoked a lot of marijuana, you know, and you hear, you've heard about all these things in the, in the news uh, over the past few decades. Um, we're beginning to follow up on what people tell us, and we're discovering that they were right. Um, they did things differently than their neighbor, and for that reason, they're not getting Alzheimer's disease. That's encouraging for the younger generation. But, yeah, you know, some, be. yeah, but you, cause you can do something about it. And I think that's, what's exciting. It's not it, it, just because, well, you mentioned your grandmother. We know that if your grandmother and your mother and your aunt, um, came down with Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's tends to follow the female line. So that puts you at risk. But if it had been your grandfather and your uncle and your dad, I would say your risk is pretty low. So if you know that, what do you do about it? Well, 
what you can is you can you can look at the epidemiological data, the kinds of things that you know that I'm doing now, not my research, and you can avoid uh, getting demented 20, 30 years down the line because we now understand that people in their 20s and 30s are showing changes in their brain related to learning and memory that predict for us whether you're likely to get Alzheimer's disease. You know, and, and most docs will say, well, I don't want to tell anyone. I don't want to give them those tests because what would I do? Well, we're now beginning to say there are things you can do mm. to avoid losing your memory as you get older. Um, and so, you know, take control early. So um, that same grandmother, God rest her soul, her husband was at my house last night, who happens to be her only husband and my grandfather, who is now 101 years old and is learning uh, Spanish and practicing English and traveling the world and committed to learning and growing and doing yoga and physical therapy and knock wood, God bless him. I mean, he is... He is like the opposite, right? He is the specimen of like neuroplasticity and like, you know, just this, yeah. this growth-oriented mentality. So let, let's talk about this neuroplasticity thing. I mean, it's, it's trending, sure. right? And so, yeah. you know, you're saying that the neurons don't die, but the connection to the neurons starts to get severed, which then creates the memory loss of Alzheimer's. Um, do you, if, if, the, if the connection is lost, is it gone? So it's just basically preserving what you have or can you have neuroplasticity? Can you go hook up to a, if there's like an island of a neuron that, that you know, kind of got, you know, disconnected from, can you reconnect to it? Or is that one kind of off the grid now? It's actually, now that depends on what part of your nervous system we talk about. You asked about the brain. So the yeah. answer is pretty dogmatic no. Um, there's a good reason. The brain's awfully complex. And so if you have like a stroke or some traumatic injury or something, um, the brain, this other cells in the brain, other than neurons, actively discourage rewiring. Um, and now in the periphery, if you severed a nerve in your arm, then that's a pretty simple system. It will attempt to regrow and, you know, neurons grow at about a centimeter a month or so. So if they're injured, you know, you give them time, they'll try and make a reconnection and it'll work. But in the spinal column and in the brain, um, because of its complexity, what happens is that other cells, they're called astrocytes, actively discourage regrowth. Otherwise, what we find, if you do get regrowth, we get neuromas and we get neuropathic pain, and, it's, you know, and it never goes away. Hmm. Uh, for whatever reason, when things neurons attempt to regrow, they just generate chronic pain. And so people live with chronic pain. It's the, the most common neurological problem people put up with. Um, so it's, it's a good thing that the brain doesn't try because it would fail. And the other symptom is usually seizures. If it tries to regrow and rewire, um, what happens is that seizures develop and usually those can be lethal. They just get worse and worse. The weird thing about seizures is that seizures is a lot of neural activity, which sounds a lot like plasticity and it is, they share the same features. So if somebody is having seizures, you want to stop them as soon as possible. You never want to let the seizure keep going over and over and recurring and recurring because it'll grow, it'll come back faster and more often and last longer, be harder to treat. That sounds a lot like plasticity. It is. So our brains can learn to develop seizures until it just takes over. So learning is a double-edged sword. You mentioned a moment ago about your father. You know, we, we now understand, let's go back to Alzheimer's and your grandmother for a moment. Um, People who learn two languages get Alzheimer's less often than people who only learn one. But the interesting thing is that if you learn three or four languages, your incidence of Alzheimer's goes up. 
Now, people who go to college get diagnosed with Alzheimer's later. They tend to compensate better. But if they do get the dementia, they decay a lot faster. This question always comes up in families. How long is the disease going to last? How fast are they going to decay? And we're beginning to get answers to these questions. So unlike your computer where you can just add on more memory, it's a finite space in your head. So you can overtax things. And so this weird thing of going to college puts me at risk. Uh, well, only if you get the disease. But do you know if you're going to get the disease? No. Um, so what do you tell somebody? Uh, you can. It's We're learning things that are fascinating and may lead to therapies, but at the moment, we're still too ignorant to know what to do with it. Yeah, that's a tough spot to be in, right? Because someone's, someone's coming to you for advice. It's like, I don't know what to tell you yet. Yeah, yeah. I get a lot of emails from elderly folks who say, oh, I read, saw your research on this or that, you know, especially I, I did research on cannabinoids, you know, and we discovered that uh, people in the 1960s and stuff who, who were today in their 70s or so are not getting Alzheimer's at the rate that the people who did not smoke marijuana are getting it. Well, it turns out marijuana is a powerful uh, neuroprotectant and uh, anti-inflammatory. And so this is why it protected them when they were younger. But if you're already demented, 60, 70, 80, smoking marijuana is not going to help you. It's too late. I'm too sorry. Late, you should have yeah. smoked in the 60s. Yeah. Say, but how yeah. do you – yeah. Is a physician really going to suggest to somebody? Today well, you we can. Know that, <laughs> in California <laughs> you, you can. can. Yeah. Even, even in Ohio, we have medical marijuana. Yeah. I'm on the governor's advisory board, but, you know, it's only medical. It's not, but uh, we're hoping one day, but uh, all that could change. You mentioned that right in your introduction. Um, politics and things may change the answers to some of these questions. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and the science is, is pretty clear about the cannabinoids. And so, you know, now it's, I, there's, oh man, I, I looked into this a little while back. Someone, someone, was inter someone was asking me to do a documentary about um, this whole space. And it was just wild, wild west. And all the big pharma money has come in. I mean, the, the, the science is proving to be pretty solid. And so now it's, you know, it's, it's like a, a gold rush, if you will. And, and there's all sorts yes. of very big interests getting into the marijuana business. Um, and there's a lot of money to be made. Now, the drug companies that I'm working with in Europe know that one day, probably five, ten years from now, it will be legal, recreationally legal in America. Uh, you, they can see that coming. We all can. Um, but they're inventing drugs that Mother Nature didn't think of. So the kinds of things that I'm testing now um, will make people not even want to bother with marijuana is kind of what they're thinking. Let's, you know, let me give you an example. Uh, the one that I just published on last year, you little white pill, you take it, nothing happens, you sit there and, and then you decide, you know what, I, I feel like being high. And so you watch a funny movie, somebody tells you a funny joke, and all of a sudden your own endogenous marijuana system takes off and you become as high as your brain is capable of being, which would include hallucinations. And that would last for a few hours until the drug wears off and then you would come down. Uh, there won't be, this would be you controlling. This is Aldous Huxley's Soma. Uh, that's what they're working on. Wow. So if you have the choice of burning a plant and inhaling it, or taking a little white pill and controlling every aspect and having pure and complete, you know, 100% stimulation of every cannabinoid receptor in your brain, what would you choose? Wow. So a lot of the stuff that we're doing now, you know, regulating the plant will become moot. It will, I think my prediction is that in 10 years, no one will care. So it's not even, uh, it's, we'll not even it's not even exogenous THC. It's something that helps no. you regulate your own internal endocannabinoid systems. Correct, correct. Because Fascinating. those are things that are not planned. You can patent those things. That's a lot of money. Yeah, interesting. I know. <laughs>
So you, you talk about a number of things in this uh, research that you've been doing that's fascinating to me, one, one of which is fear. And so we're starting yeah. to understand fear um, on, a, on a neurological basis from what I'm getting here. What is fear? I mean, how does how one define that? You know, it's the most important emotion I think people have. It keeps you alive. Um, in terms of evolution, you have to think about how our brain evolved and the environment brains evolved in for the past few hundred thousand years. Um, everything was frightening. Uh, everything could kill you or eat you. Uh, you would end up in somebody else's feeding tube way too easily. So if you smell things, a moment ago I mentioned about uh, smell, it's approach avoidance. So if you smelled something and it's unfamiliar, avoid it, get out of there. If you taste something that's unfamiliar, that's big shyness, leave it alone. If you hear a sound that is unfamiliar, you become frightened. If something off to your left was a flash of light uh, and it, should, it wasn't expected, you'd become frightened. We inherited a powerful fear gene um, and it has allowed us to be on this planet this long. Uh, fear is a great, great thing if you want to survive. And keep in mind, the brain has two jobs. One, keep you alive long enough to two, procreate. That's it, to make more brains. That's its sole purpose. Everything else is, you know, gravy, frosting, whatever you want to call it. Um, so fear means that our species is here. If we were not a fearful species, we wouldn't be here talking. Uh, we'd have died long ago. So fear for us is protective. It's great. But sometimes we can remember things, associate them with fearful feelings, and those become PTSD. And now fear enhances memory. So PTSD is a very, very strong memory that we, it's hard to get rid of. We don't have good ways of doing it. You know, it's psychological. Some pharmaceuticals will help. Um, but that's where we are today. Our brains are designed to take advantage of fearful things and remember them forever. So uh, because, someone who lives yeah. there, though? So I, I know people who live in fear, right? And yes. they're, they're very fear-driven, fear-oriented, and it's debilitating. What, hap what happens with that? I mean, so the natural safeguards, the natural things there are now starting to elicit memories which are capacitating this feeling, or is there something else that's disrupted? It's, a, it's probably something else. You know, from look, using uh, various scanning equipment and uh, some people have done studies on animals who, who share that feature, um, they appear to have inherited uh, a, a true biochemical difference in their brain, a, a true wiring difference. They are wired differently. Their chemistry is slightly different than yours. It's a little bit like obese people. Their response to tasting chocolate uh, is actually quite different than people who are not going to, you know, destined to be obese. Uh, there's even gender differences. We know that um, women experience a great deal more euphoria from cocaine than men do, but men are more likely to become addicted to it. It's hard mm. to explain. Mm. So there, the, our emotional response to just, just about everything um, is influenced by our genetics and how that wires our brain and what the chemistry of the brain is. Um, we would discover that some people eat things that make them very fearful. Let me give you the, uh, an example you might not have heard of. Uh, I mentioned this in my last book. Uh, it's uh, chocolate anger. Um, it's seen mostly in women. It's inherited. Uh, and essentially, you eat a piece of chocolate and you become incredibly frightened, incredibly angry at everyone around you, uh, aggressive. Uh, and I've had people, women, write me and tell me that this is the first time they'd ever heard anybody talk about it, but they suffer with this. And they have to avoid chocolate in any form. And it's not any single ingredient in chocolate. It's an aggregate effect of the chocolate um, because the levels of chemicals are awful low. But when you put them all together in a piece of chocolate, if you are vulnerable, 
you respond with this this powerful, fearful anger. So this is uh, this is chemically mediated, not a, like a histamine reaction. So this isn't an allergy to chocolate per se, but there's something within that 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 cocktail of whatever that chocolate is beyond yes. just the cacao that's triggering something in their neurochemistry. Oh yes, yeah. I mean, there's an endogenous. Uh, amphetamine-like compound, an endogenous marijuana-like compound. Uh, there, there's and estrogens, alkaloids. It's there's an awful lot going on in there. Uh, you know, caffeine-like compounds. So it's an amazing food. If chocolate weren't already legal, it'd probably be. You know, it should be made illegal, probably. You know, it's a little bit like we've discovered with <laughs> Tylenol. Uh, for forever, we never knew how Tylenol worked. You know, we knew how aspirin worked. We knew how you know ibuprofen worked. We had theories about Tylenol. It's a great drug, safe drug. Hospitals love it. Well, Tylenol is converted into marijuana, essentially, in your brain. Um, that's why it relieves pain and reduces inflammation a little bit. Um, so it, here you have a, a compound from a little white pill that you get at your local Walgreens that once you eat it becomes a drug that enhances your brain's marijuana system. And you can even detect with one you know, dose of Tylenol subtle personality you know, changes in people um, you know, if they're vulnerable. So what are we going to do? Make that illegal? Interesting. So you're saying the, the, what the willow bark or whatever it is that the Tylenol is, 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 is basically triggering the endocannabinoid system, which is then leading to all the kind of anti-inflammatory pain modulation that happens within the brain and, and we get the desired effect. Correct. No, it's not willow bark. It's a very different molecule, but it, uh, that's, that, the willow bark is aspirin. Oh, you aspirin know, we discovered right. Tylenol later. Yeah, but exactly right. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it all comes down to the, your, your own particular genetic mix, you know. Uh, you mentioned your father's still alive, your mother is not. Well, you know, which genes did you get? Did you get his longevity genes or didn't you? You know, we'll have to wait and find mm -hmm. out. But what we're discovering is that it's, it's more complicated than that. Um, one creepy scientific, sort of almost science fiction study was published a couple of years ago with animals where essentially they took very, very young uh, rats and they connected their cardiovascular system to very, very old rats. And essentially they shared blood. That's all. Just shared their blood. Um, and it turned, it aged the young guys very quickly and it made the old rats um, slow their aging and actually uh, their memories improved. They started, you know, developing some what you might view as anti-aging effects. <clears throat> so what are we saying here? Be a vampire. One day. Uh, <laughs> yes, you saw that movie. Yes. Are we gonna? <laughs> is this where we're going? Are we gonna just, you know, this is scary stuff that we're discovering. So what we want to do now is figure out what the heck is in the blood. Hmm. Well, sixty percent of all the proteins in your blood are made by the bugs that live in your gut. So that now all of a sudden now our gut biome is becoming a trendy topic. So we're, we're paying a lot more attention to it. Uh, it determines your, you know, depression state, maybe your psychiatric state. And now maybe how fast you age. Hmm. You know, we have this symbiotic relationship that goes way back. And at some point they may turn against us, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. we're, this is what we're discovering, you know, but we don't know what to do with it yet. We're not going to attach it. We're not going to go out and get a six-year-old and attach it to you so that you, you can live forever. That's well, not yeah, but, but we are taking a six-year-old's crap, blending it up, and, 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 and shooting it up people's butts, right? I mean, there are fecal grafts <laughs> happening now. And so, I mean, it's, it's happening. It's, it's really, it I mean, it's, it's, it's all right in you front of us. Pills. There are pills now, actually. You know, they're, they're crap pills, indeed. 
Um, you know, and, and it's interesting. Why would we do that? Why would we use the crap? Well, it turns out that about 50 to 60 percent of the dry weight of a person's feces are actually dead bug material. That's, I mean, you think about all those bugs and they're always dying in there all the time. So where do they go? Well, that's it. Mostly that's what's in there. People go, oh my God, I'm, I'm, those are bugs? Yeah. You know? <laughs> I've actually read studies on this, on some of this fecal grafting where people's personalities change. Like if you, if you were to take the microbiome out of the Dalai Lama or you know, some, someone who's been meditating and doing cool stuff their whole lives and put it in someone who has like an anxiety disorder, um, it significantly is improving their state of mind. And so there's just this really interesting, crazy stuff happening around this. And you mentioned, you talk, you talk about depression in your book. What, you know, mm -hmm. to you on the neuroscience side, what is depression, right? Like, are we, we're starting to get what this is. Right. Well, you know, um, it's not about serotonin. Um, those drugs, you know, that we have out there may block serotonin uptake, but they do a lot of other things as well. Um, so for me, depression is an imbalance of your bugs. It really is. They, we can see the connection now. We can see the connection between, in other words, depression and all the symptoms of depression are all, they're identical to sickness behaviors uh, that animals show. Um, so we're beginning to realize, you know, we, we used to call depression, still do, uh, the common cold of mental illness. Well, that's a pretty good analogy. It's, it is due to an imbalance of bugs. You know, illness in general, uh, I mean, we're full of so many bugs. It, illness is really just an imbalance of the bugs, you know, so if you take something like an antibiotic that's going to just really nearly kill trillions of bugs in your body you're going to suffer for that um, we worry about the consequences of that in adults and, and young kids because for a while it's going to alter their bugs that's going to alter their brain and if you're young there'll be a consequence now if you're older and you get the dalai lama's you know fecal material will it affect you for a while yes um, but then your bugs are going to readjust and take you back to the way you were what we're going to try and find out is how do we change you for a long time permanently? Mm -hmm. You know, you inherited your bug balance from mom, um, you know, in the birth canal. Um, how do we change that safely in you? And I, well, I think we'll work that out. And when we do work it out, we're going to discover that we, we're going to have whole new interesting ways of treating things like depression and mental illness. You mentioned that it's not about serotonin, but uh, much of the serotonergic activity and the synthesis of serotonin happens in the gut level. Um, so are you talking about not the uh, you know, exogenous kind of serotonin that you would take and that the internal kind of mechanism would be under you know, kind of better balance with uh, the microbiome being in balance? So like where, where does serotonin fall? Because obviously you know, for, to a certain extent, some of these um, SSRIs do help and do work. So there's some sort of mechanism that might be, you know, within, within the, the, the framework. Where's mm -hmm. serotonin fit in here? Um, minor, minor role. You know, we've been, I've been, you know, I've been teaching physicians for decades now. Um, but we tell them that SSRIs treat depression. Uh, if you're a physician, that's all you need to know. Um, fortunately, the FDA doesn't require that we understand mechanisms. Mm. So uh, we're always, you know, something has to be safe and effective. SSRIs are. They're safe, generally. Uh, they're effective, as you mentioned, generally. Um, when we look back at 50 years of uh, tricyclic antidepressants that were popular, 60s, 70s, early 80s, um, statisticians tell us that they never benefited anyone. Um, it was all placebo. The one thing, there, there are two things about human brains that are very sensitive to placebo effect, pain and depression. 
Um, it may be that 20 years from now, we'll look back at 30, 40 years of SSRIs and those drugs and conclude once again, it was all placebo. Mm. Um, but just in case, we give them the drug. And mm. unfortunately, people put up with the side effects. Um, yes, it's, it's very sad. Um, but that's our level of ignorance today hurts people. It does. Uh, medicine isn't like it is on you know TV and the movies. Um, but that's what we deal with. We just tell docs, look, at, if someone has these symptoms, these sickness behaviors, give them this drug. Um, we have discovered that some medications that have nothing to do with serotonin whatsoever still are antidepressants. Um, if I treat the bugs in your gut uh, that have nothing to do with serotonin, um, I can treat your depression. So I can induce depression in you by affecting systems that have nothing to do with serotonin. So do SSRIs help people? Yes. Is it because of what they do with serotonin? I, I seriously doubt it. But who cares? People benefit. Um, you know, a couple years ago, we didn't know how Tylenol worked, but it helped people. Right. So now we do. Are you not going to take it because you don't want to have marijuana enhanced in your brain? That, so, the, I mean, this, this gets into a kind of a sticky, bigger conversation around the who cares because, you know, some guy's paying $1,200 a month for some drugs that may or may not be helping. It's probably placebo, but who cares? And then we, you know, then we get into all these mm -hmm. wars over like, you know, healthcare costs, right? And, you know, at the end right. of the day, someone's paying for this shit. And, and, and yes. so, you know, it's, it, this is the challenge with this whole thing is, you know, the, the wheel of medicine, the wheel of science is a very mm -hmm. slow turning wheel until we can definitively say this is the answer, right? But, uh, but in, that, in that delta, yeah, we hardly ever do. And so in that delta comes this enormous pharmaceutical industry that's just like, fuck it. <laughs> Let's just sell them this stuff in the, mid, in the, in the midterm. And, you know, once, once, you know, they come around to it, we've had 40 years of profit, you know? Right. The, did it help? We've seen not? that many, many times, uh, and it'll happen again and again. You know, for example, in Colorado, let's go back to marijuana. Uh, marijuana, recreational marijuana is legal. Uh, it turns out that uh, oxycodone, oxycodone and uh, Vicodin overdoses and heroin overdoses have gone way down because people are not treating their pain with opiates in, in Colorado. They're using marijuana because mm -hmm. it's easy to get. Well, uh, two big pharmas are losing millions of dollars in Colorado alone because they're not selling Vicodin and Oxycodone and all those other synthetic opiates. Um, but people are living. People are not dying from, from heroin overdoses. Mm. So who are the biggest funders for against marijuana legalization in other states? These big farmers. They're losing money. Interesting. So, yeah, and, and that wasn't published in American journals. It was a British medical journal. <laughs> um, you're right. We're, we're fighting against people who would like to sell us something that's going to hurt us. Yeah. Um, and that's where we are right now in medicine. We're very ignorant. I spend a lot of time teaching docs to get comfortable with ambiguity. They never know if they're helping. They never know why they're helping sometimes. Um, but that's medicine today. Well, there's also a different kind of paradigm that's emerging with this functional medicine uh, realm where, you know, people are using food as medicine. People are using lifestyle as medicine. And, and there is this shift into lifestyle medicine and, and kind of, you know, better look at interventional stuff and predictive, uh, predictive medicine and all that. But, you know, you're, I can't tell you how many texts or, or IMs I get a week of people saying, do you know any functional medicine doctor in my area? I'm like, where the hell are these people? Right, like you know, everyone's on Main Street pimping drugs, and there's very few functional right. medicine docs who are looking at this. They're stuff. not being trained, actually. You know, part of the reason when I wrote the, the book, I hate to 
hate people would say those things. Uh, your brain on food. Um, I wanted to write more about that. You know, um, the data doesn't exist. No, there are no one is out there pre prescribing foods as medicines for the simple reason there's no money to be made in doing it, mm -hmm. um, and we, there's no one trained to do it. Um, so when I went looking for the information to try and put it in that book, it didn't exist. Yeah. Um, we don't know. Yeah, we can say some things about food and you know fats and carbohydrates and things, but um, we have complicated diets. So just isolating single factors is tough. Yeah. You know, um, look at where we are today. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the, the cocktail is, is very, very complicated. And so, you know, one of the things that you look at with fecal grafts and all this is why don't we take a Hiroshima size antibiotic dose, wipe out mm -hmm. everything that, you know, made you what you are today, clear all karma, presumably, and then take some, oh, you know, take some Dalai Lama poop and start over. It's, it's, like, it's like being a born-again Christian in, in the health realm, right? <laughs> and, 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 and that's, what, that's, that's a strategy that I know people are looking yeah. at. I'm not sure how well it's been working. Um, I've seen some mixed data on it. Um, oh, boy. You know, we do occasionally give people that many antibiotics, and the outcome is ugly. Uh, because no one gets the fecal transplant and we I don't think anyone was aware, but that may be tried That's that's akin to that that science fiction -y thing of, of attaching yourself cardiovascular system to it to a young You know organism child whatever it might be um, There are things that build up in the aging brain aging body that we probably want to get rid of Yeah, um, and maybe it comes through the diet. Why not? Yeah, you why know, not? everything else is that way. Yeah, and I mean, there's so many things in a, in a human's diet. And this is what makes it so hard. One of uh, my, my best friend's uh, mother's a psychologist from old school Russia. And, you know, mm -hmm. she's been on this stuff for years, just talking about like fa just fasting and water fasting and just some of this ancient stuff that like cleans out the gut. And they were using this in Russia for psychiatric illness and just, mm -hmm. you know, putting people on, on, on cleanses and fasts. And all of a sudden, you know, schizophrenia and all sorts of crazy stuff would start to suddenly you know alleviate and so you know the, the russia cared because they were paying the bill right and so their science right. their science wasn't usurped by a pharmaceutical um, industry the same way then i don't know what the hell's happening in russia now um well <laughs> <laughs> they, a lot of yeah we, we a lot of their data we couldn't trust but i don't know specifically that that right. was part of the problem but right. you know i i my ted when I, I did a ted talk and that was one of my main points was essentially was uh, stop eating so much you know that's that's really so important people you know they say how can i slow down aging it's easy we've known it for 50 years stop eating so much and so they say well i exercise and it's like no no no, no you didn't hear me um stop moving stop eating um, we do live on a planet with gravity. Yeah, you got to do some things to strengthen your bones, but we, you know, you, you do have a heart and cardiovascular system. You got to move around a little bit, go for a walk. But the key thing is, uh, well, I'll give you an example. If you take two identical twins, you know, and one of them, like my, some of my students, eat 5,000 calories a day because they're swimmers or basketball players, uh, and their twin, you know, ate 1,500 calories a day, they always ask the question, who lives the longest? And the answer is easy. The person who ate the fewer calories always lives longer. So I don't care what you look like. Uh, if you take in fewer calories in your life, you're going to age a lot slower. And you're going to live a lot longer. All things being equal, given your genes and your situation, um, you're going to live the longest you are capable as an individual of living. Are you going to live longer than 117 or 18 years? No. But you're going to be healthier during the years you do have. So you know? caloric so, restriction we've known for 50 years. Is oh yeah, the, is the key to longevity. And you know um, what we I've only known a few years was you know 
you don't want to treat us like we're just a blast furnace. It isn't quite that simple, but it's close. What we also discovered is that we live on a planet that circles, you know, spins in front of a sun. So our bodies pay attention to biorhythms. So it, it does matter when you eat those 1,500 calories. So somebody did a study to ask the question, what if I ate 2,000 calories but ate them at a certain time period? Turned out that mattered, which is surprising to anyone. Uh, it shouldn't matter, but it does matter a lot. So you take an individual, genetic identicals, 2,000 calories or let's say 3,000 calories a day, and you have them eat a massive breakfast, breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper, and they stop eating by 4 p.m., seems early, and never eat again until the next morning at 7 a.m. or something like that. Turns out those people are not as hungry. They don't have uh, insulin stress. They don't, they're less likely to get diabetes. Even though they're eating 3,000 calories, they don't gain weight. Um, whereas the person who ate the 2,000 calories at dinner, the way most Americans do, um, was hungry all day, felt like snacking all day. They skipped breakfast um, thinking they'd save some calories. They gained weight. So it turns out, yeah, eat fewer calories, eat them early in the day of your biorhythm, and you're, you're not going to be hungry. For you. So eat a big, big, massive, you know, 10 donut, bacon, multi-egg breakfast. I don't care what you're eating. Um, from what we can tell, just eat it early. Interesting. Um, Big breakfast. Yeah, so, so, so the only bad. other challenge with that is stretching the stretching the abdomen, right? Because if you if you're just having smoothies and stuff, and then you get a really small, you know, you don't have that much room, uh, it's easier right. to do so. You eat a big breakfast in the morning, then you're just hungry again uh, at a certain point. Actually, what's interesting is that when they did the study, people it takes them longer to report hunger, and they don't feel like eating as much at lunch. So uh, yeah, give it a try. What they these studies they actually looked at you know blood levels of insulin and growth hormone those things to see um, what happens is that your body is set to use the food in the morning when you first get up after that long fast, so it uses it apparently differently. We do not understand why why the same number of calories don't add on to the same amount of weight, but biorhythm plays a role. So yeah, uh, two things not surprising. I love how the book is called The Brain, What Everyone Needs to Know. Um, and what we're talking about is so many things other than the brain because that's the complex ecosystem that is this thing called life that we now live in, right? Exactly. You can't talk about the brain without talking about these things. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It, and so, you know, we used to compartmentalize. Uh, you know, it was it was the brain did this, the liver did this, and everyone had their jobs, and everyone was just it was this mechanistic kind of Newtonian mm -hmm. universe. It was. Yeah. And, and so when somebody has a liver failure and they undergo a liver transplant, uh, with the liver failure they have memory problems, dementia-like symptoms. They get a fresh younger liver, their memory impairs again. So you know, all of a sudden, lots of examples are beginning to show up that. Uh, you know, the brain's connected to the rest of the body. You know, who's surprised? But uh, so, and the gut, and the bugs that live in the gut, and the proteins those bugs make for us. And if they're messed up, then we start feeling pretty bad. You know, so I think that that holistic approach is what science today is beginning to provide evidence for. Uh, we just don't have the details worked out yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing is, you know, the, the industry and the science behind all of it might not have it worked out yet, but I've already taken away a number of things. I'm going to, you know, stick to my big breakfasts and, you know, uh, eat more vegetables and stay away yes. from neurotoxins and, you know, <laughs> probably smoke a little more pot. I'm trying to think of all the takeaways I have from here. <laughs> um, uh, well, if you smoke cigarettes, don't... Uh, <clears throat> don't do that. Uh, drink, 
Six cups of coffee a day, by the way, critical. Uh, we know that. You know, one of the things about cigarettes always surprises people. Nicotine is very neuroprotective. Um, and cigarette smoke is the most powerful, most common heavy metal chelator that we expose ourselves to. Chelator? So if, yeah, so if you're, if you're a farmer and you're around pesticides and heavy metals in the, in the, the fertilizers you're working with, um, people who live in rural environments in America have the biggest risk of getting Parkinson's disease. So we've, we've learned that smoking cigarettes prevents Parkinson's. Drinking six cups a day of coffee prevents Parkinson's for all intents and purposes. Now, so if you're growing up, you know, in rural Kentucky or here in Ohio, um, and, you know, you're out on the farmland somewhere, you better be smoking and drinking coffee. Otherwise, you're doomed for Parkinson's. Um, is this what you're going to tell people as a physician? No. Um, we've known that for, for decades. In fact, there was a movie not long ago called Thank You For, not, or Thank you for Smoking. Thank You For Smoking, yeah. Yeah, and there was a throwaway line by one of the lawyers that said, well, we all know that smoking prevents Parkinson's. And I don't think anybody watching that movie believes it, but that's true. And when you, when you control statistically for you know, lung cancer and other things, uh, if you are at risk of Parkinson's, it will prevent it. Um, so, and we understand why, but we don't have good substitutes. I have friends. I have friends that take uh, uh, nicotine supplements or the uh, what is it? The um, all the sprays, or the patches. sprays yeah. and stuff. Yeah, for the neuro the neurodegenerative kind of you know offset, um, just because yes. of that, right? I mean, I have people that read this yeah. research and are like, okay, well, you know, I don't want lung cancer, but I'm going to take nicotine, and right. so a lot of, yeah, a lot of brain guys do this. I think that's a part of that. That'll be part of the future. We're going to get you know have sprays or uh, or patches that we'll wear. Uh, that that are designed for your genes, that will you know protect you from the things your lifestyle. So people who live in big cities get schizophrenia more often than people who live on the farm. Uh, so maybe if you're at risk, uh, you might want to wear you know this particular patch. So medicine's changing a lot. We're paying much more attention to your genes. Uh, we're going to diagnose you by your genes and your symptoms rather than giving you some title that you're a paranoid schizophrenic. No, no, no. These are your genes. These are your symptoms. Therefore, this is what we do for you. I love It'll it. Be you know, there's something cool about being alive in the era when we're still trying to get it all figured out because I feel like, you yeah. know, if, if we don't like kill each other and like nuke each other and destroy the planet in the next couple of generations, we're going to kind of right. have it figured out and medicine's going to yeah, be very different. We'll live a long time. We'll look like the Borg. We'll all have, we'll all know everything uh, about everything at all times. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of, Encouraging and scary at the same time, you know. Um, Walking around drinking Dalai Lama poop smoothies. <laughs> right. I'm not sure we'll need them. We'll, we'll have a six-year-old attached to our back, and a, I don't know what. It's a crazy world. I, you know what? I think I'm glad to be alive now, so because that world's maybe too crazy. Yeah, but, no kidding. Uh, no kidding. And we, and we, yeah, and we can yeah. look, look at what we maybe steer clear of. Uh, Gary, this is this has been delightful. I you know I didn't know what to expect. We were talking about the brain, but we talked about like everything, and so I really I really enjoyed the breadth of your knowledge. It's been really fun. No, it's fun for me. You can see why I enjoy studying and teaching. Yeah, thank you very much for this opportunity. This has been this has been great. Uh, the book again is called The Brain: uh, What Everyone Needs to Know. Uh, Gary Wenk, W E N K. Check it out. What a cool guy. I'd love to have you back. Um, and I wish you the best of luck. And you got new research. Uh, yeah, send it my way. I'm super interested in this stuff. I'll do that. All right. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Pedram Shojai, the Urban Monk. Let me know what you think, and I will see you next time.